0: So many good times, good laughs, Sal Vickersburg pranking the staff, Mitch Vickersburg's email address, phone calls with friends and guests, angels, demons, all from Bob's imagination, take a second, let that sink in. Think about what it takes to make it happen. Even got me rapping. Pocket dial. Got the crowds dancing. So live. Spontaneous and true detective Bob. Cash we trust to get a load of us on the internet. First guess drew read. Now it's limitless. So listen in. Then share the link of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter clicks. All count, So spread the word. From Bob Nation out to Bob World. No sign of Slowing down. And hit the bridge for vape shop heading to clouds. So scream aloud from the rooftops. The Bobcast.Podbean.com.
1: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Bobcast With you as always is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board Today's guest is a return, guest's second appearance, he's the author of Hero Gets Girl The Dark Age, Monster Mash, the creepy kooky monster craze in America His new book Groovy makes its world premiere at the infamous New York Comic Con The weekend of October the 6th, 7th, and 8th It's a spectacular 192-page hardcover in glorious real-time color that takes you on a far-out trip to the era of lava lamps and love beads. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the podcast my good friend, Mark Vogler. How are you, Mark? Bob, I'm doing great. How are you? And thanks for having me. How are you? So I guess like as a sequel to the last time you were on the show, you you let out an infamous line where you told everybody a little spoiler of the title. You know, you, you let you said Groovy. You said you're not going to tell anything else about this title of the book. You spent, I guess, the, the last year compiling, like putting all this stuff together. And um, I was gracious enough to get a preview of it, so I went through it. But can you just tell the audience like what exactly Groovy is all about? Uh, sure, Bob. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Um... Yeah, you were the you, you
0: had the scoop I didn't tell anybody because we Irish uh, are, are superstitious so yes. I just worked in secrecy for about a year and a half but groovy um, is, uh, is is a nostalgic piece it's um, it, it's all about the, um, the period of psychedelia and um, the, the glory years were like 66, sixty67 68, sixty69 seventy that was like the, the glory years and it it traces um, you know how it began. I mean, you can trace it all the way back to uh, there were they, they have their cave paintings that they think were painted by cavemen who were on hallucinogen because certain symbols are still showed up. You know, uh, uh, eons later, and uh, and and the word groovy was coined by jazz musicians in the 20s, and LSD was invented in the 30s. So it has has all these all these precedents, but uh, really came together. You know, in the mid '60s, that's when it really started to happen, and uh, and then of course, uh, it it, just like any great trend, it died, but it's but it's never dead, never really
1: dead. Yeah, everything has a return, I guess. Um, I mean, for me, I grew up, I I was born in '80, but like, I guess when I became aware of pop culture, I was maybe you know five, six, or whatever, like around that time, and I remember like learning about the late '60s, the early '70s the counterculture movement the summer of love and I always had this like tremendous like sense of guilt growing up that I didn't live to experience it you know and like I I always like looked at those times and I remember like seeing like the monkeys like were being rebroadcast on like Fox channel 29 back in the day in like 85 86 and like always having a curiosity I mean my mother was a huge um Jim Morrison still is a Jim Morrison fan and learning about the doors and like Led Zeppelin and all that but like Everything kind of like came together, I guess, during that decade. Like the culmination of what pop culture is all about—music, movies, television. Um, the book is—I I love the the layout of the book. We won't reveal too much for the audience because it's going to be um, a treat for them. But it definitely pays homage to that time and and place, at, like in, in an age where the internet didn't exist, and like you, your only way to learn about things was through like you know a Starlog magazine or something like that. I felt, I felt, I feel as if like you know this era, everything was like. I mean, people collected stuff, but they also they coveted, it, but they also like they really appreciated it, you know.
0: Yeah, it was it was it was hard to come by, like, um, and I know that feeling about wishing you were born in another time. Because I always think like, oh, I wish I was alive when Phantom of the Opera came out in 1925, or when I was in high school. Oh, I wish I was uh, in high school in the '50s when all this cool rock and roll was first happening. But you know and that. Now I look back and I think, well, yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool when I did grow up. But that's what happened. You, uh, I was, um, I was really too young to, to, I was too young to take part in it. But I was old enough to observe it as it was going on. Mm-hmm. I was 11 years old in '69 when Woodstock happened. So I, I was, you know, really immature. But like, just looking at all this cool stuff, and so you would hear a cool song on the radio, like uh, "Crimson and Clover" by Tommy James and the Shondells, or. You'd see a cool episode of the Monkees, and you think like, "Oh man, I can't now. I can't wait to grow
1: up so that I can, you know, check out some of this groovy stuff." I know, I, and there's so there's so much great stuff like in this book. I mean, we we can brush over some of it, but I mean, I guess like with pop culture, I mean, I, I I've always been obsessed with it. I've always been obsessed with you know all elements of it. But I guess like at the core of it, music was the thing that really drove that decade. And from music, I mean you know just because you had a song doesn't mean that you couldn't identify that with a cartoon or a lunchbox and like in today's world like if like you know i don't think artists don't have that mass exposure across all mediums would you say that the beatles were the ones that like you know brought this brought this in yeah
0: i i kind of think that uh it, it like everything you know came from the beatles i mean you know uh i i joke that um you know when they landed on the tarmac uh, at uh, JFK Airport in '64, they they weren't wearing their Sgt. Pepper uniforms yet. But um, but but yeah, it, it started it started with them, I think. I think that the the album Rubber Soul was was where it was really born. That's when you um, heard the first uh, bit of feedback. That's when George Harrison played his first bit of sitar. And even the cover of Rubber Soul, uh, if you can picture it, Bob is is kind of distorted, almost like, you know, a little bit trippy. Yeah. And that was an accident. Mm-hmm. They, the, the Beatles were just uh, l- looking at a whole bunch of slides being projected on a screen from that photo session, and then one of them went in, like, a little bit uh, sideways, and it looked distorted, and then they all went, that's it, you know? They wanted the distorted look, you know? And then uh, and then it grew from there. It, that wasn't what you would call a psychedelic album, but it had, it had like, the beginnings of it, and then Brian Wilson was... Uh, you know, heard Rubber Soul and then his answer to Rubber Soul is Pet Sounds and then next thing you know, you know, the Stones are putting out their satanic majesty's request and and Cream is coming out. So, so it, it, so yeah, uh, 66, uh, was uh, Rubber Soul and I think that's where it really, in in earnest, began.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first time I heard Rubber Soul I was really taken back by, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, like, I've never heard anything quite like that. I think, uh, I mean, I guess they were experimenting with drugs. I mean, that was the beginning of them. I mean, I think the Help movie. I think they're stoned the whole movie, right? Like, they, they're not even, like, doing their lines. They had to do a whole bunch of ADR work. That and, like, yeah. um, the distorted guitar. Isn't Taxman on um, Rubber Soul? You know, I, I think, think so. I think that distorted sound starts coming out then. But, like, yeah, I, I guess we could thank the Beatles for, for allowing us to... Uh, you know, open the watershed of pop culture there. I mean, there's so many other great acts, like, you know, the zombies and the doors, but the Beatles, I mean, still to this day, too, is, I mean, everyone looks at their work and it's just, they marvel at it, you know? And it's funny you mentioned the zombies because, um, you know, uh, Pet, Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper are considered two of the
0: great, you know, album, like, groovy albums, but the zombies put out one that, that didn't even come out until after they were gone, um odyssey and oracle and uh, uh and the zombies to me bob one amazing thing that i think happened was they put out their first hit single was she's not there and that was in 1964 which was really early i mean it was only it was less than six months after the beatles landed at jfk and if you listen to she's not there it sounds like it came out in 68 i mean it is oh, wow. it is very psychedelic and and uh even the theme you know like that she's not there it's like all weird you know uh, about this enigmatic heartbreaker, so that was almost like an early seismographic indication of what
1: was to come. I find it interesting that like um, the sixty, I mean, you know, it's known for so many different things, but like you know, the psychedelics and stuff like that, like you know, um, Doctor Doctor Timothy, what was his name invented LSD? Um, Doctor Leary. Doctor Leary, right? So that's the thirties, right? So it took 40, 50 like almost like you know, twenty five years for it to catch on and. Mainstream America, like uh, I think I read the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test years ago. Years ago about it, but San Francisco seemed to be a spot where everything was like you know pulsating out of like. Why San Francisco? Why do you think that like what what was it about that time that made people want to expand their minds?
0: Well, um, I mean, uh, Leary, uh, you know, gained fame for for preaching uh, the gospel of LSD in the '60s, but. LSD itself was, was uh, invented in thirty eight, but the, I think what happened in San Francisco was that um, uh, it, it, it was very organic. Um, people just came together there. It was it was a uh, the people who were there from the beginning referred to it as a uh, as like a small town feel, like an artist community. Um, you know, uh, I talked to the guitarist for um, Janis Joplin's old band, uh, Big Brother and and the Holding Company. Who said uh, if, whatever you wanted to do? If you wanted to paint a, a painting, or if you wanted to be a baker, or if you wanted to get up on stage and play guitar, like everybody supported you. And of course, uh, the, the the famous clubs and the uh, you know the uh, Jefferson Airplane would be playing these gigs that were like you know four hours and all these psychedelic lights and liquid projection and everybody mm-hmm. tripping and dancing. And of course, that that kind of a lifestyle that kind of community isn't really sustainable and and it wasn't because you know before long um the uh the media got hold of it life did a big piece on it next thing you knew uh tourist uh, tour buses were coming through and you know uh people were taking photos of hippies as if it was a tourist destination and um more and more kids were coming in and it just got really really just crowded and and kind of ugly from what everybody says and the, the purists, the re, the people who really were part of the scene in San Francisco, they always say, you know, that the the phrase itself, "Summer of Love," um, is is like
2: it was called an ad man's fantasy. It was mm-hmm. really just a, a made up
0: thing, and they don't buy it, you know. So whenever I whenever I use it in uh, in my book, Groovy, I always I always put it in quotes, and sometimes I put I say "so called" because that's what really what they felt. They felt that it that it was. Uh, uh, just just a phony like a come on and that's where it really ended by the time george harrison visited it he his quote is that he said you know he went there expecting it to be this um amazing place and it was just the
1: way he put it, it was just full of uh, uh spotty dirty kids on drugs yeah i think i actually saw footage of that uh one of, the, one of those beatles documentaries where you arrived there in san francisco but yeah i i visited uh, san francisco i believe 2004 for the first time and I remember going to the corner of Hayden Ashbury and there was a gap and a Ben and Jerry's ice cream on either side and I just remember thinking wow this is it (laughs) like you know like but um yeah it's it's always fascinating to think about that time and that place and how people gravitated towards that city and uh, I mean I guess most of like the way that they were thinking was brought on by the political scene at the time which is kind of similar to what's going on today how much of, like, you know, like, uh, like JFK getting assassinated, LBJ, the Vietnam War, how much did that play into the groovy lifestyle?
0: Well, you, you, you couldn't have one without the other. I mean, um, I always think of, of, um, of you know, grooviness or groovy culture, let's say, as, as like, kind of like uh, the flower that grows in a neglected, cracked, uh, full of broken beer bottles, and weeds, uh, parking lot that nobody takes care of, and it's just this horrible, ugly place. And then uh, a lone flower will will come out of a crack with just a tiny bit of dirt. And that's what groovyness or groovy culture kind of was. Um, and of course, uh, it, it, they, they reflected one another. The, the terrible uh, political stuff that was going on uh, was was um, you know echoed in in. Um, in, in the culture, in the music, um, you know, Woodstock was a was a, a huge uh, was like the world's uh, biggest uh, you know anti-war protest. And uh, but you're right, the struggle for civil rights, um, the uh, the assassinations, um, and uh, the Vietnam War, and, and the inauguration of Richard M. Nixon. These are things that are not groovy events, but they're they were
1: you know they were definitely things that were touched on in groovy culture. Yeah, it, it it is fascinating to go back and, like, see all that stuff. I mean, everything started to change. I mean, movies started to change, too. Like, you start to see different type of, you know, avant-garde films. Like, I mean, uh, Easy Rider. I mean, I that film in itself, you know, still today people look back at it, you know, talk about it. There's books about it, podcasts about it. Everything seemed to take on a new meaning. Like, um, wh- like how, how do you feel? Like, what was the difference between films that came out during the groovy era versus, you know, the forties and fifties. Well, you
0: know, it, it's funny you mentioned Easy Rider because, um, of course that starred Peter Fonda, whose father, Henry Fonda was a, was a, um, a big movie star going back to the thirties. And, um, Peter was a struggling actor. And, uh, when uh, Peter says, when his father saw Easy Rider, he said, um, he said, son, uh, there's no story. Um, because of course, in, in old Hollywood, uh, you had you had a story with a beginning, a middle, and, and an end, and quite often a happy ending. Although that, although Henry Fonda made you know great movies like uh, the Oxbow Incident and and uh, Grapes of Wrath, that that were not happy movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was a you know a, a revolutionary kind of guy himself in his day, but he didn't get Easy Rider, and uh, I, and I can understand why because uh, you know I've seen all those old films and. Easy Rider does seem kind of aimless, but um, you know, the more you watch it, the more you get out of it. It's largely improvised, and it and it captures it almost like a time capsule look at a vanishing America, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, in that film, uh, the, the extras were all played by locals wherever uh, Dennis Hopper was the was the was the director, and he played uh, the uh, sidekick to Peter Fonda. Wherever they went, um, they just used locals, you know. But um, I think what happened is. It, you know, over that whole period was, uh, and it wasn't just because of the groovy culture, but just movies really changed over that whole period for, for several reasons. For for one thing, um, you know, they got they got uh, looser. Uh, the the uh, they they used more uh, vulgarity and uh, profanity and nudity, and uh, there's reasons for that. You know, um, to, so that by the got by the time it got to the end of the decade, um, they introduced the rating system so that uh, uh, you could you have Elizabeth Taylor and Richard
1: Burton uh, yelling the F-word at each other and just
0: ra- make it rated R, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, you, you didn't have to worry about uh, children getting corrupted. But, yeah, I think the, the, the prevalence of color, the use of color over, this, over that decade, mm-hmm. um, movies were still largely black and white by the end of the 50s, and then uh, all the, the rating system, and then, of course, the consciousness that was going on. When Easy Rider became a hit, uh, it was a surprise hit, uh, all the all the studios took notice and started started imitating it. So
1: that, that's what happened. Um, also, I mean, we had there's so many like you know classic era like actresses like Jane Fonda and stuff like that like start coming out and like you start seeing more roles like developed for females similar to what just happened with Wonder Woman. I guess you know like every now and then we have you know a reemergence uh, Barbella. Uh, that's a classic, right? I mean, that's from the groovy era as well. Yeah, and it, and it is a, a, a very—you uh, you could
0: argue that it's a psychedelic film um, in its design, it's, it, it, and it's—it's it, it's really just a very sophisticated comedy. You know, it was—it was, it was uh, directed by her uh, then husband Roger Vadim, who's a French director, and um, it's just a funny movie. And uh, again, it was probably a head scratcher back then for a lot of um, a lot of folks <laughs> who. Uh, we're used to uh, you know more mainstream fare, but it it, it really holds up and um, it it's playful and you know uh, it's it's just the most gorgeous eye candy, including um, pardon my sexism, including Jane Fonda herself.
1: Yeah, she really does do. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I was just thinking about it this morning. I was just like, you know what, that that film definitely is timeless. But uh, I understand what you're saying, like the the emergence of color, and I I can't even imagine like what it was like to experience the rating system for the first time you know like kids today just you know look at pg-13 r-rated as you know an afterthought but like it must have been something just you know the conversation you know topic for most people like oh this is you know rated r movie you've got to see and all sorts of i mean i guess like books you know books have been around for you know forever but i mean with movies movies were like these like you know people would would talk about it more so now that, like, people, like, see a movie on a weekend and, like, they talk about it on Monday and it kind of goes away. I feel as if, like, you know, the 60s, even the 70s and 80s people, I mean, a film could live on for, like, you know, uh, more than, like, it's theatrical run, you know? People would still want to, like, chat about it and still, you know, like, make theories up and stuff like that. At the same time, I mean, you also had television just completely killing it, you know? Like, television... I guess like when I think of like the groovy era of television I, I mean I gotta like talk about the Brady Bunch and like how the Brady Bunch I, would you say it revolutionized like American family culture? Well uh, I, I, I don't know if i goes go
0: that far but it, it certainly struck a nerve I mean um, I, I, I love the show um, and uh, I, def, I definitely um, explore um, the Brady Bunch and the, and the Barters family in Groovy. and What happened there, that was just very interesting, is that after the after the Groovy movement kind of started to die, you know, because of um, the disastrous Altamont concert and, uh, and things like, uh, well, the, the death of uh, Brian Jones, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Jimi Hendrix been yeah. uh, a two-year period to the day, uh, all age 27. It was the weirdest thing. And uh, and of course the, the Manson murders and and um, uh, you know the, the the Vietnam War dragging on uh, people people the hippies were starting to cut their hair and enter the job market it wasn't a sustainable uh, you know movement really uh, now it's more like a pleasant memory I mean there's still hippies in the hills who are in their seventies you know of course but um but then when uh, but then uh, the mainstream uh, media kind of usurped it and they they put out things like the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family and the Banana Splits and H.R. Puffin and stuff and uh and, and so they were doing this it was almost like a kind of manufactured grooviness and mm-hmm, the real hippies you know the, these people who are older than me Yeah, like 59 would look down their nose at that stuff but it it still had the music it still had the color and it it still it, but it had cheesiness as a as a bonus the Brady Bunch of course didn't start out as a groovy show but um but when the uh, as the kids got older and the 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 movement was, was, was waning, they kind of they kind of latched on to it in
2: real life and uh, and in uh, on screen. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. that the Beatles were uh, high on they, they were pretty
0: much stoned on, on marijuana throughout the making of Help. And even even Greg Brady, even Barry Williams admits to uh,
1: shooting scenes as Greg Brady when he was high. so, so there you go let's talk now about uh, something dear to my heart uh, Batman 66 Adam West also rest in peace as uh, we record this podcast he passed away this year what did Batman do for the groovy culture and when I when I hear the title groovy of your book I hear him saying groovy yeah well
0: well first of all I'm uh, yeah I, I, I'm devastated that we lost Adam it's, it's a world without Adam West I like, I didn't know how affected I would be it was just you know I, I I grieved, you know, like, um, uh, I don't cover uh, Adam the Adam West Batman much in the book, and, um, but,
1: yeah, it, it was groovy. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was more tending toward the, the psychedelic, what came later. He was right on the cusp. Um, you, you know that episode I, I'm talking about, there where he says it, <laughs> he looks in the camera, it's like a tight frame on him, he's like, groovy. You know, I'm not remembering that moment, but, of course, I do remember the Battoosie, and, yeah, the Battoosie.
0: Uh, and the colors. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I think they always say that Milton Berle was responsible for more people buying um, televisions in the late 40s, but I, the way I remember it as a kid, Batman was, was responsible for people upgrading to color television mm-hmm. uh, in 1966 when it came on because, I mean, we, one family in our neighborhood had a color TV and we would go over there. Just to watch Batman because it was so colorful. Yeah, you know, to this day when you turn when you pop an episode in, it's more colorful than uh, <laughs> any other show. I mean, it's just uh, Batman was what they called op art back then, you know, mm-hmm. and, and camp. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, it is really it, it is a really groovy show for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I remember the first time seeing the colors as a kid and just being amazed with the pals and the whams and stuff like that. Also, too, I mean, with the monkeys, like the monkeys. I I don't think I ever saw, like, a show... Like, I remember, like, seeing the intro and then, like, also the way that they handled, like, the credits and stuff like that and, like, the way it was shot. It was just... It had this, like, energy to it. What do you think the Monkees did for television? Well, the, the funny thing about the Monkees
0: was that, um, you know, I, I, I always picture the, um, the stereotype of a producer, a fat, a fat, bald guy in a suit with a big cigar sitting behind a desk saying, yeah, the kids like the rock and roll. So let's, let's give it to them. Uh, like I think what what they tr- what, obviously what they try to do with the monkeys was they they um, they try to do something that would uh, sort of capture some of the energy of the Beatles. So um, you know when people who grew up in the monkeys all of a sudden they see the the movie Hard Days Night and they're like, oh that's where the monkeys came from. You know it's very much in, influenced by by uh, Richard Lester's uh, 1964 black and white film mm-hmm. Hard Days Night, which is a masterpiece with starring the Beatles. But um, the, the monkeys, the really funny thing that happened or the unusual thing that happened there was that it was, it was a prefab the prefab 4 it was, their, uh, was was what they were jokingly referred to as. It was a studio concoction. The, this was not a band the Beatles were a band, and then everything else you know came, sprang from that. The monkeys, they just it was a TV show, It was a fictional TV show. They happened to they had a big cattle call audition. They hired, uh, you know, uh, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, uh Mickey Dolenz, and Peter Tork, and they let them keep their own names, uh, which I think was was key to the way things worked out. And then, uh, and then they had those guys actually sing, and then they taught them to play the instruments. And all this stuff happened where they, they kind of they were a fictional band, but by the end of the two year run, two season run, they had become a real band. They had toured playing their own instruments. They certainly weren't as good as the, the, you know, the slick guys who played on their earliest record, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as their uh, virtuosity goes. But they uh, they toured. They they, they they even started to demand musical autonomy. And so it's almost like the studio uh, created a Frankenstein, you know. But um, it, it's a it's a great memory. Uh, it, the, the music is fantastic, and the shows the shows hold up. They have the Marx Brothers. Quality, so um, I think that was um, kind of like bringing the Beatles into the living
1: room in color every week. The Monkees, yeah. You know, I, I, sync all those bands that like were made, that like, created, like I, I guess they could thank the Monkees for that as well. Like the bands at the end of the '90s, early thousands, there were you know, you know casting calls went out. What other um, television shows like stand out to you from the groovy era? Well, I I really
0: remember one that um, doesn't quite hold up as as well as it as it did when it was first run, but it's called Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. And um, the reason I remember that one is because they um, it, it was it really uh, used all the stuff that was going on, like the groovy stuff that was going on at the time. The sets were were a- absolutely psychedelic. It, the um, the material was was it was just full of um like like very very veiled drug references and not so veiled um, double entendre mm-hmm. and um, they were always uh, you know dancing to groovy stuff and uh, it, it it was it, it, Tiny Tim was born from laughing who is you know re- really a, just a weird cre- you know creation of like of flower power and uh, so that, that show. Has a lot of grooviness in it, but when you look back on it now, it's kind of like a lot of really corny comedy. But but a, a show that was really important was um, was called the, uh, the, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and um, that that is uh, very interesting to watch. If you can uh, you know click on some YouTube clips. Um, first of all, they had uh, you know so many you know really cool bands like they had the Who and Jefferson Airplane, and the Doors, the Birds Beatles sent them uh, film, which was what they were into at that time. They didn't want to do public appearances anymore. Uh, Buffalo Springfield, Steppenwolf, the Turtles, you know, they had all these, all these uh, groups on, and they were doing, they were doing real. It was the weirdest thing because they looked like squares. They had short hair. They looked like an innocuous comedy team. Mm-hmm. You know, the great guy, the funny guy, but they were doing like really, really biting political commentary to the point where uh you know they they believe that they were cancelled uh that Nixon canceled them you know like they, they think that 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 the uh they were cancelled shortly after the inauguration of Richard M Nixon and they they just they're convinced that that's what happened and it, and
1: it could be really really so wait, they they claim that Richard Nixon had yeah. a part in getting them canceled from television really yeah well they, that's what they
0: believe you know um, yeah you know,
1: they just think that
0: um uh you know he was not anno- they, the way they look at it, he was inaugurated. They
2: were
0: fired. So wow. he thinks it was. Uh, it, uh, this is Tommy. The funny uh, half of the Smothers Brothers talking. Uh, he thinks it was a direct result. You know, uh, he said he. His exact quote was that um, uh, he, he, the administration didn't want the Smothers Brothers making criticizing the way they were running the war. Wow. Uh, you know, every Sunday night, and they were good friends with with um, uh, Bobby Kennedy, and you know. Uh, they, they always i mean uh, so many people say that when uh r f k was assassinated in sixty eight uh, that that was uh Tommy James of the Shondells said that was the end of the sixties for him you know a lot of people you know that was a, that was a turning point almost like uh if Hillary Clinton had been elected instead of Donald Trump you know. Mm-hmm. Like, if uh, if RFK had taken off instead of Richard Nixon, who knows? You know, it's a science it's a science fiction thing to think about those kind of things. But mm-hmm. but um, that was like uh, that was definitely something that was um, you know heavily on people's minds. And so those are two: Rhoda Martin's Laughing and uh, and uh, you know Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Beyond that, like the Mod Squad. there's
1: a lot of really, really cool shows from that period. Yeah, Squad was really cool. Uh, I guess the Smothers Brothers. We can thank them for you know Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live still going strong. Actually, as we record this podcast, uh, the new season premieres tonight. Talking about like you know, uh, I mean Saturday Night Live always talk talks now about what's going on in the political climate. But thinking of that, you know, I I kind of miss like the 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 brothers or you know like uh, Abbott and Costello, the Smothers Brothers. Like there isn't really. In today's pop culture, we don't have, like, a duo, per se, like that, that work off one another, you know? Who's on first, who's on second? Like, I don't think that exists. Maybe I'm not thinking correctly, but perhaps maybe some somebody could be listening to this out there and be like, oh, we should bring that back. Yeah, the comedy
0: team pretty much died. I mean, they still make uh, bloody movies, so that, um, mm-hmm. I know that there's one now with, like, Sam Jackson, and then, um, is it Ryan Gosling?
1: Uh, Reynolds uh, at Deadpool oh yeah. Reynolds yeah I get mm-hmm. my
0: Ryan's mixed up and uh, so you know it, those kind of buddy movies were, were um, you know they're, they're really just action movies with a, just a little bit of comedy and a little bit of slapstick but um, uh, I, and, and Jay and Silent Bob was was uh, a very you know brief revival of uh, of the comedy team co- concept especially when they when they uh, start in their own
1: movie and that is true just, so yeah, I, that is they're 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 actually they're making a new one, Jane's Silent Bob reboot, I think, right? Like that's come that's a thing. Oh cool! I mean, I,
0: I you know I think it's, I think that's a healthy thing. You know, like I was always hoping that they would do uh, a remake
1: of fellow Meet Frankenstein I with know. Jay and Silent Bob. Oh my god! Is, is that a thing? No, no, that's my own little my own little fantasy of. That like, should be a thing. That we should I should write that script. We should write it together and see if we could pitch it to him. That'd be. See, I need mean, well, to. My other idea was to have um
0: uh, Mike Myers, uh, who did the Austin Powers film, to have him do a nineteen sixty six style Batman movie. I know. And and uh, Will Arnett is Batman and then he could play, um, like the Mad Hatter and get a whole bunch of uh
1: cool people to play villains, you know. It'll never happen but I know you pitched that to me last time, I remember that one. The I'm the sorry. Jane Stein the Bob meets Frankenstein thing though, I mean that that could just be because the the last time that you recorded with me, I believe we did speak about the forthcoming Universal Studios monster. You know they were trying to like do this dark universe thing, and it it didn't. I mean, apparently the Mummy did make money, but I'm not sure if you saw the the latest Mummy. But it, it was just a mixture of different. It, it was totally off. The Mummy she didn't really have much to do with the plot, and it was to me it was just a, a failure. But I mean, that's an that's an idea for a future podcast. Maybe we can come back to that. But. uh Back yeah, to I, I, it, it
0: was it was critically, and I mean everybody, anybody I know who saw it. They they hated it, but um, but uh, she's a doll, uh, Sophia, who played the mummy. I mean, um, you know, I I, uh, I like watching her. She's a dancer, you know, mm-hmm. so I sometimes i would dial videos of her dancing in music videos.
1: Did you see the mummy? Did you see the new one? Oh,
0: no, no, I, I I I'll never see. I, I can't <laughs> stand the living sight of Tom Cruise, so I'll never see the
1: mummy. He he. Well, spoilers out there, ladies and gentlemen. If you didn't see it, but basically, he he becomes the mummy at the end of the film. He, so, like that movie is a setup for him to take over the role. And if you never see it, you know, like you don't really have to. You didn't miss, miss much, but I mean, maybe you'll get it right because I love monsters. Um, back to the groovy uh, lifestyle. Something also near and dear to my heart. Groovy the 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 book that comes out that you can pre order now. Um, it's got a great section where you interview Steve Ditko and Steranko. Comics during the groovy era definitely changed a lot. Um, let's we'll, we'll start first with DC Comics. Let's talk Let's talk about DC Comics and how DC... At first, I guess, they didn't really want to change their style, right? They didn't want to adapt to it. They wanted to keep it classic. What can you tell the Bobcast listeners about comics during this time?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, the comics were... were got pretty wild um, by the end there. Well, I, d- I didn't actually um, get to talk to
2: Steve Ditko.
1: Um, he's, he's very, uh, you know, elusive. He's pretty old now. He's in his 90s. Yeah. I did talk to him once so that he could, you know, I said, May I interview you? And he's like, nope. You know, but... Um, he said that? He <laughs> just, just said no and then let it hang and I'm like, uh... uh, I, got that. I, uh I got that bit from uh, somebody else reviewed the book. I, I, it says in the article that you recorded it, but it, yeah, I, I've been there. Jerry Lewis did the same thing to me. He said, nope.
0: Yeah, I, I try to get him, too. Well, I try to get everybody, but uh, but I did talk to uh, and, uh, uh But anyway, yeah, What they, what, what at, at first, just like, don't forget that the comics were run by guys from the 40s. You know, they, they, were, yeah. <clears throat>
2: they
0: were run by guys from the 40s, so it was truly the old guard. So, um, you know, a guy like Mort Weisinger, who was the uh, Superman editor, I mean, basically uh, say, like, hey, Lois Lane has the same hairstyle as she had in the 50s. And he would say, "Well, we're keeping it that way because we want to be able to reprint the old stories." And people, were, and then finally, kids are writing in and saying, "Like, you know, there's a lot of r- really cool hairstyles out there, and Lois Lane isn't with it." So finally, they they finally had to like push out the old timers and, and get in some new
1: people. But the one that the one that really gets me is, is what they did to Wonder Woman. Yeah, let's talk about that. It's uh, so cool. Um,
0: first of all, it was uh, the artist was uh, a, a gentleman named Mike Sikowski. and. Was the founding um, Justice League of America artist in uh, '61? Even mm-hmm. uh, the Bowl number 28, and he um, he was described as a uh, frustrated, uh, fashioned, and um, nobody had to tell. Even though he was, not, you know, an old guard guy like, like everybody else, nobody had to tell him to stay with the times. He he could capture that late '60s look. Um, he he kept up with with um, with. Fashions with women's fashions, so uh, they decided that they were going to, you know, give Wonder Woman this makeover. So they basically they just took cool. away her powers. They took away her costume. Um, so they just made her uh, just Diana Princess, a human being with no powers, and. Uh, how long
1: did that last in the continuity? I'm sorry. How, how long did that that, that storyline last? Um, let's see. That was about. Um, uh, it
0: was about 25 issues, starting wow. in 68 with, with Wonder Woman number 178, and they're really, really fun to look at because she she runs a uh, a, a boutique and she wears pretty much. She, you can tell Mike Sikowski had a fetish for thigh high boots because whenever he drew her, mm-hmm. she had thigh high boots. And um, she was trained. This is this sounds corny. She was trained by a uh, blind Chinese uh, kung fu uh, master named Yi Ching but it was the first time I
2: believe uh, that Kung Fu was ever mentioned in a comic book really so she she trained herself and uh,
0: pretty much she was uh, she was in the world of like uh, nightclubs and motorcycle gangs and flower children and uh, uh, you know her boutique and she was in a very 60's world and
1: uh, How, how how did she eventually so like for 25 issues she's mortal she can't obviously use the invisible jet. She can't use the lasso of truth. How, like, so she was, like, she was getting trained to get her powers back? No, she's getting trained, uh, just, just to, uh... Just to uh, kick ass? A, or, yeah, just to, like, basically they turned her into, like, James Bond. Oh, wow. Saying. I want um, so to, I want to read this. Yeah, from, from, uh, from
0: 178 on. Now, by the, by the end of the run, I think, uh, they were, they were, you know, they finally decided to bring her back. She was doing uh, not such, not so much groovy or James Bond things. She was starting to do like some sword and sorcery kind of things, you know. Some uh, so, and then finally they 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 brought her back to being Diana Prince. But it really was kind of, you know revolutionary. I mean, like uh, it, it was a real different thing to do. But they had other things like there was a book called uh, that DC put out called Showcase. Yeah. And that was a, that was um, you heard of it? Do you mm-hmm. remember it? It would be like they would all. It, it was you never knew what you were going to get with the next issue. It wasn't regular characters that you know they, they actually put it out as as almost like a, uh, a, a litmus test to see like what readers would
1: respond to. And then if something became a big hit, they would spin it into its own comic book. How they Got
0: her own comic book. And my favorite character is the Metal Men. That's how they got their own comic book. So they so they were doing groovy stuff in that. And Salkowski was drawing it. They had one called uh, Jason's Quest. Which was a uh, you know a a, a young young haired uh, long haired young man on a motorcycle with a guitar on his back mm-hmm. you know uh, searching for his long lost twin sister in like England yeah you know, like it was, all, it was all like yeah groovy stuff you know and so the, so and then when like I said when we were talking about Ditko and um, and Stanko uh, Ditko brought out a title and showcase called the Hawk and the Dove yeah. and uh, that was very topical because. It, this was, again, 68, it was an election year, and this is when, you know, uh, Nixon and uh, RFK and then later um, Hubert Humphrey uh, were, you know, trying to get elected, and, and you know, the, the Vietnam War was topic number, topic number one, and so Hawk and the Dove was about two boys, brothers, and one of them, you know, was peace-loving, and the other one thought that, you know, we, we needed, we, violence could solve problems. It was very balanced. It wasn't, uh, you know, one or the other, you know, it, it wasn't like a uh, anti-war piece. It was a very balanced piece, very topical, and it couldn't it, something like
1: that couldn't have happened ten years earlier. I remember you actually sending me Metal Men comics uh, in the '80s. Uh, the artwork was I, I love the artwork. I do believe that they're actually trying to turn the Metal Men right now into a franchise. They want to have that in their universe. Um, comics also gave birth to uh, Spider-Man. Uh, was it what year was Spider Man? Well, Amazing Fantasy came Amazing Fantasy fifteen. Then he comes out and Amazing Spider Man number one. Correct. Yeah, I think I think uh, Amazing Fantasy fifteen was in sixty two, and then uh, mm-hmm. he came out with Spidey number one in sixty three. The, the following year. So I mean, like Spider Man too. I mean, like those first hundred issues. I mean, when you look back at those, they, they definitely like the language is is definitely groovy. You know, like Peter. Parker you know like that first hundred I remember like I I don't have the original I have maybe two or three really poor copies of like 68 72 and 74 but like as a whole like they're so timeless and like I'm just so happy like I'm so thankful for Stan Lee first off like that Stan was able to like you know just come up with these crazy characters and like I mean I had the chance um, I think I mentioned it to you but I'll repeat it here on the podcast um, I got up and asked him a question a couple of years ago at a Comic-Con and I wanted to know about I wanted to know about uh, Rick Jones. He didn't want to talk about Rick Jones. What he wanted to talk to me about was the way that he named his characters. And like Peter Parker, um, Bruce Banner, they both start with the same letter and he did that so he could remember their names. And like it's you know the smallest little detail that sticks out in my mind when I read these books but I'm just like yeah man like read Richards you know like all that is just so Stan the Man can remember who he's writing about yeah Sue Storm Pepper Potts yeah um, what else you got and he had the uh he had a
0: legendary and self-admitted terrible memory so uh, yeah. uh I was like uh I was reading Spider-Man uh when, from number 42 on when they first came out in 66 uh-huh. my first issue was the first appearance of Mary Jane Watson. Oh, wow. So oh, I was lucky. I was eight years old. I was like... And then when I I, but then when I asked him, I said, like, it, you know, it's great the way all these little storylines get picked up. And and, he, and I said, so you kept all these characters and all these little plot lines, you know, little stuff happening at, at the uh, Daily Bugle and, and little stuff happening with, you know, Aunt May. And you kept it going. And then he says, oh, no, I cheated. I just would look at... When it was time to write the new Spider-Man, i just glance at uh, the... Last
1: week's script or last issue script, and then I would you know do it that way. <laughs> so. Yeah, but in our minds, it's like the most fantastic thing in the world. I mean, when he did the Incredible Hulk, I mean, um, he set out to basically create his own Frankenstein's monster, and like, I I don't, I don't know when you th- when you look at the Hulk now, like you don't really associate him per se with Frankenstein. I mean, they they look alike kind of, but I mean, so many great stories and like comics, like at that time were just. I mean, comics also like influenced so much that was going like you know once they became popularized and everyone was like oh you gotta pick them up like I can't imagine what it was like to actually like now when you buy a comic you go to a store that sells them you know like you could pick up comics like at the local deli you could get them like you know down the street uh would the subscription service start during this area as well like could you like pay Marvel they had subscriptions but uh uh they would actually mail them to you fold it they would actually fold the issue. Really? And mail them that way, yeah. And because uh, they kind of didn't, they didn't know, like, the comics were, were considered disposable entertainment. Which way did they and, fold them, Mark? Did they fold them long ways or?
0: Long ways. Wow. And uh, uh, so they, they just didn't know. I, I, I didn't subscribe. I don't know anybody who subscribed, but I've, you know, read this over and over. Um, yeah, I, like, all the comic books I bought were either from a, a drug, the drugstore that I could ride my bike to or... Uh, a place called the Berlin Mart in Berlin, New Jersey where mm-hmm. they ripped the, uh, the covers in half they ripped the top the logo off the top of the covers and sold
1: them for uh, like 7 cents instead of 12 cents so that was where you still see those kind of issues like, yeah I have some of those I didn't realize that's what was going on <laughs> yeah the reason they ripped the lid, the, 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 those things off they, that was proof that the magazine didn't sell so they
0: send them back to the publisher for a refund without having to send the entire issue Wow, but but issues were not supposed to be sold, but they always were. They so always whenever were. you buy old Silver Age books, you'll notice that the third of the top of the cover is ripped off. I love those. You know, it's like a, it's almost like
1: folk art. Yeah, it's almost like looking at like a time capsule. So, so during this era too, um, did, when was the comic codes, the comics code of America type thing like issued? Like, I remember hearing something once where it was like a specific thing that like brought this in. Well, that happened in in the uh, 50s. Um, That was the 50s, uh, right. What happened was uh, there was, um, uh, you know, EC EC
0: Comics were doing really gory, uh, you know, Bill Gaines uh, in the 50s, -hmm. uh, really gory comics and kind of disturbing comics and really gritty uh, crime comics. And um, people were really concerned, like, that that these were being sold to children. And there was uh, something that they considered to be an epidemic, Juvenile delinquency was considered to be an epidemic, to the point where they had a, uh, a sense of subcommittee, a committee, uh, you know, uh, investigate the causes and prevention of juvenile delinquency. And one of the things they pointed to was was comics. So, uh, the, the comics were it was was comics were actually in danger of extinction. So they got together and created that Comics Code Authority. So it was a self-censoring uh, operation, and they. Um, they, they would have a, a panel read every book and give it the stamp, you know. Uh, some were uh, immune from it, like Dell, because they did all, like, Disney and kind of stuff, you know. He mm-hmm. did all television and kiddie books, so they didn't bother going through. But uh, And it was Stan Lee, for the first time, who, um, in the 70s, he rejected and published anyway uh, an issue of Spider-Man that had a... Um, uh, I think it was... Uh, Uh, Harry
1: Osborne, maybe uh, the death of Gwen Stacy, the drug overdose, or heroin. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember reading about that. Because they thought, you know, you know, it was it was about drugs, and then Stan just said, no, we're
2: putting it out anyway. So he put the book out. By then, it was it was the code was you know kind of old hat anyway.
0: Yeah. But the moment that was the moment when when it when and then eventually you just don't see it anymore. Be
1: interesting to know when the last ever comic book carried that code stamp on the upper right hand corner of the cover it also could be a fantastic like biopic type thing if somebody out there ever made you know like we have all these movies that are based on comics what about a movie based on you know the creation of like censoring comics in a way and like how i mean people still buy comics today but i feel as if back then comics were just so much more important to a young kid you know like that you're saying like driving to the drugstore on your bicycle and then running rushing home riding your bike to read the latest issue and you'd have to wait you know like a whole month or you know books now sometimes are published bi-weekly um, but for me I mean I still go to the store every Wednesday sometimes I'll buy a book and not even really read it for maybe like a month or so but I just go just because I, I still I still love picking them up I still love that smell and I still love art in general but yeah I'm, at, I'm woefully out of touch of course but I do have a subscription to a current book it's called Scooby Doo Team Up oh cool yeah I, I, with the Jim Lee artwork and stuff um
0: no it's not no it's not Jim Lee uh, Variant
1: well he did a Variant cover I think of that right
0: oh I, I didn't know that but it's a cute book you know like yeah. uh, and, and uh, somebody named Charlie Fish writes it and it it has like really funny scripts and uh re- really like loving uh like like this Sh- Charlie does his his or her research, you
2: know,
1: mm-hmm. and really finds out, like, the, the backstory of the Challengers of the Unknown or, or, the Impossibles, you know, like, so it's kind so it of, oh, it yep. mm-hmm.
0: so it makes me feel like I'm, like, part of today's world, although of course I'm not.
1: You are, you're, 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 you know, bringing, they see, people think that today's current events, people need to know about yesterday before they can focus on today. But uh, this is an excellent transition into our, our um, next category, cartoons at the time. Groovy cartoons. What can you say about, like, what, how did cartoons affect people back then? Well, I, I
0: think it had a profound effect because, um, you know, uh, when, it, when a child is young and their, their brain is still forming and, and then you feed them, um, you know, uh, Cocoa Krispies and, and High C, Put, on a Saturday morning, put them in front of a television set, and then it's the Banana Splits rocking out. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's almost like a a, go- a government uh, test case of like you know t- uh, drugs and media. You know, like uh, but uh, there were so many uh, so many of the cartoons, the Saturday morning cartoons in the uh, in the late 60s and early 70s had bands and they had regular music music uh, new songs that were treated like music videos within each episode. It, it, there were the, um, well, the Beatles actually were the first, you know, in 64 when they uh, when they had their, uh, their, actually it was 65 when they had their uh, cartoon series. But then uh, the Impossibles in 1966, they were a band that were secretly superheroes. The R.T. show in, in 68, and they had real hits. I mean, Sugar Sugar was the was not only made it the number one, but it was the number one
1: Song of, of 1968, and it's it's a great song. Really, know? that was the number one song. I never knew that. Of the whole year, because it was on the chart, on,
0: uh, it was number one for so long. And um, then the Banana Splits, uh, Josie and the Pussycats, Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp—they were monkeys. They were chimpanzees doing kind of a James Bond shtick, mm-hmm. but they always would put on like clothes that looked like it
1: looked like a, a San Francisco Rays, and they would. They have, if you look at some of that stuff, it's hilarious. I, remember, um, I you know, you're blowing my mind because I do remember watching repeats of that as a kid. I haven't thought of them in thirty years. Yeah,
0: it, it, watch one of those because it's like because after a while you're watching and you're thinking like, wow, man, that that uh, that organist is is as good as John Lord, you know. Yeah. Like, but of course, it's just a monkey. And and then um, you know the Jackson Five, you know, uh, yeah. was was very psychedelic with the colors and everything. And the Brady Kids, they they they, they had a band, you know. When, they, when the Brady Bunch uh, went into uh, cartoon form. So, and then Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo were, were not a band, but Scooby-Doo always had, in the first season, uh, it was just weird all of a sudden they'd have a song about two-thirds of the way through an episode and it would just be them running around wherever they were solving a mystery and and then a rock song was playing in the background.
1: Wait, what so- year did Scooby-Doo premiere? I'm uh, sorry? What year did uh, Scooby-Doo premiere? Scooby-Doo, uh, uh, in 69 and of course it, 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 wow. it is never left I mean it, they're still, still yeah, making still making them yeah for me I, I never like as a kid I remember watching the old episodes and always like I remember in the opening credits there would always be like this snippet of Batman and Robin like team up and like I, I would wait and wait for it and I remember like I never forget that morning where they actually aired that episode and I finally got to see I think it was like a two parter or something like that but uh, Scooby-Doo scooby-doo i mean like it's just he's timeless they'll never go away i mean there was films that were made 17 years ago i'm sure they'll probably put him back on film again um cartoons i i I was fortunate enough that my generation actually did still have the saturday morning cartoons like we still had the the serials and the you know the music and like you know that block of time every saturday morning now um public television doesn't necessarily you know three six and ten don't carry that you could still watch cartoons on networks but I miss the Saturday morning traditions
0: yeah, it, was a, it was a ritual and um, you know there's so much that was so cool from back then but of course you know uh, our grandparents went to see the movie serial you know in the in the 30s and 40s and you know so everybody has that kind of rose-colored look at their childhood but yeah there was something really cool about Saturday morning
1: and uh your parents weren't up yet and you
0: were just getting your, yeah. your mind
1: by these, by these weird cartoons. I know, weird plot lines, weird stories. I mean, Groovy, you know, the book, um, it's going to do, people are going to really enjoy it. Uh, I'm excited that you're going to premiere, you're going to be appearing at the New York Comic Con, I believe that's in two weeks, right?
0: No, it's, it's uh, one week. Uh, Next from, week. From
1: when, I'm speaking. That's right, it's October. 6th, 7th, and 8th, right? So people could they can meet you, they can get a signed book there as well? Yeah, I'll be
0: there. Um, uh, the, the, the gig itself, the entire gig, is, is the 5th through the uh, through the 8th, uh, but I'm only going to be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday with, with Groovy. I don't know how many copies they're going to get there. They're air shipping them to that gig. So I don't know if they're air shipping 10 or 100. So it's possible that, you know, you know, I hopefully they'll be gone. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, but I'll still be there. I'll have monster mash, and I'll just be doing sketches for you know for anybody who wants one. Or, you know, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the Gal Gadot lookalike
1: I know the Gal. The, did you see Wonder Woman? Did you go to the the movies this year? I was so tempted, and everybody loved
0: it. You know, mm-hmm. and the the trailer looked so cool, but I didn't go. But I I do want to see it. it. It looks cool.
1: I, I enjoyed it, um, it I mean it, it gave DC the hit they needed the last time you and I spoke they were failing I, that that summer the Batman v Superman was critically lauded and then Suicide Squad did good money but nobody really liked it I, I mean now I, they're shifting like so what the new thing is now is that they're not going to have DC, DC Universe is not going to be all about continuity they're going to be putting out films that are like uh, one-offs did you hear about the Joker biopic movie coming out? Yeah, I, I've been hearing
0: this, and they're and uh, they're not doing the movie that uh, Affleck
1: uh, developed, the script that he developed. Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 my, my feelings on that are that just in general, though, like, I mean, he's not going to be Batman for much longer. I mean, like, there was like this appearance where like he would he danced around the question and he said, "I'll be Batman for as long as Warner Brothers wants me to." There's going to be bat Batman's going to be around forever. There's going to be numerous Batmans. I do like the idea, though, of, like, I mean, Marvel right now, they're, they're stuck in a continuity box. And, like, these characters, you know, are, are going to age eventually. Robert Downey Jr. is, I believe, maybe in his early 50s, mid-50s. He can't do these roles forever. So, I mean, like, some of my favorite comics, too, are, like, Elseworld Tales and stuff like that where, you know, What If. Like, I love the What If Marvel Comics series, and I would love to see, like, What If Marvel movies, but I'm not sure they could do that. But uh, we'll see. But I mean, the book is Groovy Kids. Uh, I believe you can pick it up November, November the 15th, is it, Mark? Ships
0: November 15th, but you can pre order at um, uh, Tomorrow's.com and Amazon.com, Target.com, Walmart.com, com. Like you can find it real easy. It's, uh, the subtitle, it's, uh, the full title is Groovy When Flower Power Bloomed
1: in Pop Culture. And you can also check out his website, markvoger.com. There's there's great previews on there. You could also take a look at some of um, the excellent blogs that you do. Um, definitely you know, pick up Hero Gets Girl, The Dark Age, um, Monster Mash I really enjoyed uh, the last time we were on the show. Um, anytime you want to come back here to the BombCast, you're always welcome. Uh, the aficionado in my life of pop culture, the one who introduced me to everything before the Internet even existed. Um, side note, my brother Sam in Los Angeles this morning told me to say hello to you he also too misses those mail packages that you sent us so yeah um, oh, uh, I'm, so, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled that uh you know that we're still in touch and uh, you know please, next time we talk to Sam please tell him if my fellow uh, Avenue me Frankenstein uh, fan that I said hello we're gonna pitch Kevin Smith we're gonna we're gonna get in touch with him Jane sound that Bob meets Frankenstein coming to theaters 2024. Written by Mark Vogler and the Cahill Brothers, it sounds like uh, something that we can achieve if we think about it. And uh, look, I'm just I'm ecstatic you're back on the show. I love the new book. Um, thanks so much, ladies and gentlemen. Definitely check out Groovy. Check out Mark's website. Um, Mark, thank you again. Thank you, Bob. Rock on, ladies and gentlemen. That's been another episode of Bobcast. Bobcast.